Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting podcast and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 16 and we have professional poker player Alan Bari joining the podcast. Alan is a World Series of Poker bracelet winner and has amassed millions of dollars in poker winnings over his career. We discuss a whole host of topics from his bracelet winning tournament to intuition and tells at the poker table Phil Ivey and his casino cheating scandal, traveling the world playing Texas Hold'em, game theory optimal betting strategy, staking players, and more. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy my chat with Alan Bari. Today I'm joined by professional poker player, or retired professional poker player maybe, Alan Bari. Alan, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Jake. I appreciate it. So Alan, you said in 2011 that you were the best poker player in the world, or there were reports that said that you claimed to be the best poker player in the world. Is that true? And what was your mindset back in 2011? No. I I don't really think I ever thought that. Um... Maybe like 2008, 2009, I actually thought I was the best in the world. But uh, I don't know. Back then, you you say stupid stuff. Can I curse on here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> um, yeah, you, you say a lot of stupid shit because there's incentive to be like a brash personality and potentially get sponsorship. Um, but 2011, when I won my bracelet, was actually like it was the tail end of of my poker career really i was i think uh when was it april of 2011 i was actually studying for the gmats i was going to take uh, the gmats and uh go to get my mba but during that process i i got fifth at a world poker tour event for like 200 something thousand um and then that my gmat studying got put on hold and then I won that bracelet in 2011 for whatever it was, 874000 So <clears throat> then I I kind of just figured, you know, I don't really want to go to, back to school for two years. But, you know, back then you say a lot of stupid shit. Okay. Pretend, pretend like you're the best. It's, okay. You know. So as a wise old man now, you look back and have a bit of a chuckle and a laugh about it. But at the time, yeah. that was the industry. Well, I mean, back then, poker was a lot easier. You know, six years ago is a, is a lot in the poker world. Um, now they have, you know, they have simulations and game theory optimal about correct plays. And, you know, I mean, the humans can't beat um, artificial intelligence in these heads-up battles, which is one-on-one in poker. They just, so basically they solved, to a certain extent, no limit hold'em one-on-one or heads-up. Um, so it's, it's kind of crazy what's, what's happened in the past six years, but I mean, now I, you know, I still play poker, um, part-time while I run my business, but I would say I play last year, I played almost a thousand hours. So about 20 hours a week this year, I've played 600 hours, 650 so far. So I'll probably be around eight, eight to 900 hours 
Um, I don't travel anymore like I used to. Um, for four years, I was uh, playing, I would say, eight, nine months out of the year, I was traveling to Europe, traveling all over the United States, going to Vegas for five weeks every summer and playing, you know, probably 60 to 80 hours of poker during that Vegas time. But I don't play tournaments anymore. I just play cash games. So, um, you know, I usually go down to Parks Casino outside of Philadelphia. On Tuesdays, I play, you know, about 15 hours there. This weekend, for example, I'm going to Atlantic City. I'm going to be playing Friday and Saturday during the day and at night, um, probably play 20 to 25 hours of poker. So how did it all how did it all get started for you? We'll get stuck into some of the some of the transition from being a pro, traveling the world, and then you know playing cash games now as you sort of develop in your career. But in the beginning, were you playing poker in your teenage years or earlier than that, or did it start at university? What was the I guess the impetus to get you started playing poker professionally? So I grew up with uh, two of my still best friends. They their family played poker, and in middle school we would watch um their dad play he had like a weekly friday game and then we started getting our own weekly game um you know and then so in high school we continued that we played dollar two dollar limit poker so we didn't play no limit texas hold'em which is the you know the, the most popular form of poker right now um we would play weird games like stud um omaha limit generally limit games um and then in college, you know, I had uh, sophomore year, I had a dorm with a lot of other poker players, and we would play like two dollar, four dollar, three dollar, six dollar, um, pretty big cash games for college. You know, where we would win or lose a hundred, two hundred bucks. Um, and then as I as I got older in college, I started playing in underground cash games in uh, at Rutgers. They had these shady, shady cash games where you'd you know, ring a doorbell and someone would open a garage and they'd let you in. And, you know, they got raided a couple times and they were in like the complete ghetto in, in New Brunswick. You know, you drive past some random bar that has half the lights out and like people, you know, there, there would be cops out there half the time. And, we, you know, one time I drove past and there was actually like a caution tape and someone had been shot out there. So sounds like was, the movies. Yeah, it pretty much was. Um, you know, and, and back then poker was really easy. I mean, you could, you were playing with, you know, some other college kids and some other younger guys. And then, you know, a couple older people, um, that were just looking for a private game. New Brunswick's kind of far from any other actual casino. So that the, the games were pretty good there. Um, and I just realized that I was actually good. Um, and then after college, I worked in finance for two years during that time. I still played poker a lot. Um, my first job out of college was at AIG, and my boss actually let me leave Fridays to go to Atlantic City, um, which was nice. Very but, nice. Um, and then my second job, I was playing tournaments every Wednesday night, um, and I won the same tournament like three or four times for like $5,000. And basically, I didn't want to leave because uh, you know my mom pretty much said, don't leave. It'll look bad. So then they made me leave by laying me off and that I got a nice severance package and I said, let me see what happens. And then I won a tournament online for like 48,000. Uh, that was December of 2007. And then 2008 was my first, you know, year of playing full-time poker. 
And January of 2008, I won a tournament at the Venetian in Las Vegas for 96000 And, uh, yeah, I had a very good year in 2008. So, so how and, old were you when you won that tournament at the Venetian? Uh, 2008, 24. So, so, or 23 or 24. So yeah. at, at 23 or 24, you're obviously a young man. You've got a lot of winnings, a lot of cash flying around, Vegas casinos, all that sort of stuff. How does that play in your mind? Is it, this is easy, I'm going to do this forever, how much fun is this, this is great, or is it hours and hours of hard work and is it hours and hours of practice and reviewing hands and going over, you know, gameplay and things like that? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of both. Back then, I really thought it would be easy to make like half a million to a million a year, which, to be honest, in 2008, it probably was easy to make that much money. Um, And, you know, my life was really poker back then. I played, you know, like I said, nine months, nine to ten months out of the year, I was doing nothing but playing poker. Um, You know, during the week, I would play online poker, talk poker. I would go on forums to study hands, talk about hands that I played. Um, You know, it's it's not the hardest job, but it's not the easiest. Um, You know, it does take a lot of studying, and you you have to – if you don't keep up with the game, um, you know, you'll definitely – get passed by um back then there wasn't as many other people studying the game as there are now today if you're not studying the game every day all of these you know internet geniuses are gonna are gonna fly by you um which is kind of why no limit cash games and tournaments are are a lot tougher than they used to be um but yeah i mean it was it was fun it was a, a little bit boring when i wasn't playing poker i would just you know Monday through Friday, if I wasn't playing poker, I would just walk around town. And uh, I would say my money management abilities in 2008 were not good. Um, I think I I would say I almost went broke in 2009. I had, I would say I went from 300000 to zero, or almost zero, in 2009, and then I built it back up. Um, so it was a lot of... There's a lot of uh, backing that happens in poker where you buy pieces of people. And I made a lot of bad investments in other poker players. And I got I had people who owed me a lot of money. So that's kind of that's kind of something I've learned from from the game at this point. Now I never loan money. I never buy pieces of anyone really unless I really trust them. You know, there was actually just a scandal where not a scandal, but. This poker player it was in the main event of the World Series, it's a $10,000 buy-in. It's like the big one that was just on ESPN. Yeah. This this guy, he sold pieces of himself in the tournament, but he sold 200% of himself. Okay. How, does that, how is that possible? So it was all individual pieces. So like he'd go to you and he'd say, do you want 20% of me? He'd go to me and say, do you want 20% of, of me? And he did that to, I guess, 10 people until he had 200% of himself. Now, that's fine, and it probably – I mean, it's not fine. It's not acceptable. It's its cheating yeah. um, because the the plan is to never cash in the tournament. Right, because he's and got 20 just, grand for a 10 grand right, buy-in. Why would he want right. to win any money? Exactly. So he buys in for 10000 He cashes out – or he, he never makes it to the money, so he gets zero on the books, and then he takes $10,000 off the table. However, this genius um, accidentally cashed in the main event. <laughs> so I don't know exactly what place he got, but he ended up 
even though he took $20,000, he ended up owing money that he didn't have. So he couldn't even figure out how to properly, you know, get knocked out before the money after he already stole, you know, all this money from people. So now he's, he owes, you know, it's not a lot of money that he owes, but it's, it's his credit in the poker community is completely gone. And, uh, you know, in, in poker that, that sort of shit happens all the time. You think someone, this guy was supposed to be like a very good, honest guy. All of a sudden you find out that they're, you know, a scumbag. So that's just the life. So as the talent pool grows for poker, what are your thoughts on players having God-given talent versus hard work, or is it always a mix of both? Um, I think that hard work will always outweigh talent, but talent can take you past a certain point that, you know, hard work will, will stop you at. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, especially with live poker more so than anything, because, you know, physical reads and being able to, tell when someone's weak or when someone has a big hand is you know game theory optimal doesn't take into account um things like that like game theory optimal is it's a new it's a newish term in poker where you know it uses nash equilibrium to say i think i'm talking about this correctly but i might not be but um basically uses nash you know game theory to say okay no matter what my opponent does if i act in this certain way or if I play my hands in this certain way that they'll never be able to exploit me. So anyways, game theory optimal doesn't take into account physical reads and physical tells where I can like look at you and determine, you know, whether you're weak or whether you're strong, you know. So it kind of strays away from game theory optimal, but you know, being able to being able to read people and being able to flow with the game and knowing like okay, this guy just lost a couple hands you know, he's more likely to bluff in this spot or maybe he's less likely to bluff because he just lost a couple of hands. There, there's a lot of being able to read personalities that goes into the game that, um, you know, is, I think, intuition that can't be taught. And no matter how hard you work on that, those things are, you know, are just things you're born with, I guess. So, How big a part of your poker play or anyone's poker play is that intuition and trying to have those reads and getting those reads correct? Is that, you know, once in a hundred hands it's useful, once in a thousand? Or is it, it can get you in a lot of trouble if you can't do it well or you put yourself in bad spots? I mean, I think that 99% of people who play poker professionally don't even consider reads. Um, I, I think I'm different because I grew up playing live poker first. A lot of people these days grew up playing online poker first because you have to be 18 or older to play online poker, whereas in the United States you have to be 21 or older to you know play in a casino. Yeah. But um, I mean, I would say for me personally, who focuses on live reads a lot more, um, I don't know, maybe one in 20 hands, one in 30 hands, it affects you know the situation. Um, it, but it's never, it's never, you know, solely the read. You know, it's usually I analyze the way the person played the hand, and then based on that, in conjunction with how they're l- looking, you know, you can just tell when someone's tense, when they're a little stiff. Um, it's really hard to explain exactly how it works, but you know, you can just tell that they're a little stiff, or they're, you know, why are they acting like this, or why are they talking like this? Is it because they want me to fold? Is it because they want me to call? Um, so I don't know. It's hard to explain out of context Yeah, yeah um, got it. because got it's it. just so, it's just so crazy. 
So take us through what it was like winning a bracelet. Obviously, there was the years leading up when you said you were the best in the world. Whether you believed it or not is another thing. And then it took a number of years to get to. Was it 2011 when you won a World Series yeah. bracelet? Yeah, it was June 2011. So I'm actually sitting in my office looking at this. I have, My wife made this framed photo with the winning hand and stuff, which is ironic that I'm sitting staring at it. But... So was it a blur, or do you remember, you know, a lot of the hands? Do you remember a lot of the final yeah. hands? How, how? What is it as a memory for you? Yeah, I mean, I, re I remember a couple big hands leading up to it. Um, I would say, so I think it was four days. It was supposed to be a three-day tournament and ended up being, we had to go to a fourth day because it took a little long. So I would say the end of day two is kind of where I started to really increase my stack relative to the field and most of it came in like one really big hand I played where do you want me to tell you a hand history or is it just completely no, worthless? No, go for it. Go for it. Well, I mean, I I had pocket queens on an ace king nine king deuce board. So, ace king nine king deuce and I had pocket queens. Um so and a couple of other cards there. Yeah, an ace and two kings and so I bet the flop which, you know, is um, kind of normal when you raise preflop. And the guy called, and then the turn I checked, and he bet, and I called. And the river I checked, and he went all in, and I called. And that was actually part, part a lot of my, a lot of the reason why I called the river was because of um, live reads. I had, like, a really sick live read on the guy um, that he was just, calling me with nothing on the flop to try and like take away the hand, take away the pot um so i called on the river and he told me later he had jack 10 so he had a the flop was ace king x so he had a he needed a queen first straight right um so anyways that was a really big hand and that got me a lot of chips and then i started putting pressure on people and then at the final table is when i pretty much amassed all the chips um but i mean there, there's just so much luck in these tournaments it's all about like seat draw. You know, if you have a really tough player on your left, you're kind of handicapped because, um, you know, they can re-raise you, they can call, they can just make your life a living hell. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, so many times it's seat draw, it's table draw. Late on day two of this tournament, I had professional poker players looking at my table and like laughing at the fact that I had this table in a, it was a $5,000 buy-in. You know, back then, um, you know, these tournaments didn't, they, they got a lot of players. So I think it was 900 or so players. So um, there's usually a lot of pros in them, but I had all amateurs at my table. Um, you know, and that's that's luck, you know, the fact that I had all amateurs at my table, the fact the final table, um, you know, I had the two tougher players on my right. Yeah. Um, you know, there's so much, so much luck involved in non poker things going on. Um, and I mean, now, especially I, I appreciate those things and, you know, you have to be good to win multiple tournaments, but to win one single tournament there, you know, you, you'd have to be stupid to say, oh yes, this was all skill. Um, I mean, I did play very, very tough at the final table and I completely ran over everyone at the final table. I mean, going into the final day, I forget what the chip counts were, but I think I had 9.8 million and the next person had 1.6 million. Well, so I had six times the next. There was four of us left going into the last day. Um, it was actually it was actually funny. So 
a lot of the times in these in these poker tournaments, um, because the pay jumps are so big, you um, you make deals often. So you mean like third to fourth is a big difference in prize money. Exactly. So a lot of the times, heads up, um, you know, you make a deal where, you know, let's say, I, I forget what. Um, let me think of what. I th- first was eight hundred seventy-four thousand, and I believe second was like five hundred something. So a lot of times you'll make a deal well where you say, okay, let's say instead of playing for three hundred thirty thousand, we'll play for fifty thousand, and then we chop the rest. Right. So we redistribute the prize pool. Um, so when we came into the final day, um, I actually offered everyone, the other three players, um, I offered to take only, it was kind of a ridiculous offer, but I offered to take 840000 instead of 874000 <laughs> Right. And then the rest of them could, you know, split the, you know, split the difference. Because I'm actually looking up the numbers. It was... Fourth place was two hundred fifty-five thousand. Third was three hundred forty-eight. Uh, second was five hundred forty thousand. So if they had made a deal with, because all three of them had similar um, chips, yeah, they would have been able to get about three hundred seventy-five thousand if they had made a deal, mm-hmm. which would have been more than third place. But they laughed at my deal. So as a lawyer, thinking about all these deals that you poker players have, I'm sure there's no written contracts in place. It's all handshakes and smiles and. And, yeah, uh, and winks and nods. Is that right? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, nowadays, um, a lot of a lot of like the European Poker Tour, they facilitate deals, so they create the contract for you, which is kind of nice. Um, considering how much money these these poker tours make, um, I mean, the the Rio or um, Caesars makes I don't know ten to fifteen million every summer from the World Series. But for some reason, they feel they feel like they shouldn't facilitate deals. So with at the World Series, which is some of the biggest tournaments all around, um, there's no there's no physical papers that anyone signed. I mean, you can, I guess, have a lawyer on hand or have these documents ready, but everything's done on handshakes. And it's kind of ridiculous um, considering, you know, how much money's being tossed around. I mean, um, my first big score or my first really big score in 2008 um, it was at the Borgata in Atlantic City. So we chopped five ways. So I think there was almost a million dollars that we split five ways. I got about 300000 of it. And we basically got a million dollars in cash. It's kind of hilarious that this is exactly what happened. We got a million dollars in cash, and we went to the back poker table of the poker room and then we divvied it up based on like whatever we agreed to based on chip counts. What? Yeah. It's kind of it's absolutely insane. Well, so we had counting the hundreds and then splitting it up and then getting, you know, Well, they were in they were in 50k bricks. Okay, okay. So, we were handing out 50k bricks and then like, you know, breaking breaking down bundles of 10,000s and then, you know, handing out like I think one person got like 52,300, so we would have to count out 2300. Oh, Anyways, this took like about an hour and a half or two hours, and all of a sudden, you know, we realized, oh shit, we were off by five thousand, and one person was m- missing five thousand, and that we just didn't calculate it properly. Yeah, and one of the other guys had already left, and he refused to accept, you know, giving up a portion oh, of right. his of his money to make up for the five thousand that the other person was supposed to, you know, be made whole to. 
And, you know, he just left and he said, no, screw you guys. So that's kind of an example of where not having these, you know, written documents kind of screwed us. But, you know. So when you won the bracelet, was that basically the pinnacle of that time for your poker career? Was there anything else you could have won um, at Um, that time that was bigger? Yes. Well, so actually uh, three weeks or two months before that, I played a World Poker Tour event. Um, It was televised and I got fifth and first place was 1.15 million. So um, that was about six weeks before I won the bracelet. Um, And, you know, I would say the big things to win are the World Poker Tour, the World Series of Poker, and then the European Poker Tour at the time. Um, So those are kind of the two bigger things. But that bracelet that I won was, that's the summer of 2011. That was the fifth fifth or fourth biggest bracelet event out of about 55 so it was definitely it was definitely a good one to win and i'm you know extremely happy with it um i was backed so i only got half of it but um you know half of 874 is still a good it's still a good amount of money yeah that'll that'll do so what did you do after it do you you see the guys who win the masters in golf go to i think it was waffle house i think bubba watson went to waffle house and had a meal (laughs) What was your, uh, you know, two or three hours after you won the, the big prize? Yeah, I mean, I was just so tired from playing four days of poker. I mean, you, you play from 12 p.m. until 2 a.m. every day for four days. So, And the mental grind of that, especially the closer you get to the money, like every decision actually has thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of consequences. So we just went to a sushi bar um, and, you know, I had – about 25 to 30 people watching the final the final day so they just hung out um at the sushi place and then we celebrated a few weeks later we went to some club um excess or trist or one of the clubs in vegas and got bottle service so nice nothing nothing too special i i i did buy a car i bought an audi s5 with my with uh part of my winnings so there you go it was can I ask you about celebrity poker players? I'm not sure if sure. you've seen them in cash games. You probably have, but you see, you know, Toby Maguire or Ben Affleck, and yeah. even Michael Phelps. Yeah. What What's the deal with these celebrities? Are they just losing cash and having a bit of fun, or are they any good? What's the What's the rub there? Um. Well, it depends on who. I mean, Kevin Hart recently has been on a lot of on a lot of televised things. Um, he's very bad, but he's also playing in the toughest. You know, he's playing in. A, he played on a $300,000 entry fee at the Aria in Las Vegas. So, I mean, he's playing against the toughest poker players in the world. It's all about who you're playing with. I There's a rumor that Tobey Maguire is one of the biggest winning poker players in in uh, the world. And that's mainly because he's playing in a private Hollywood game on the West Coast somewhere. Yep. Um, where he's only, you know, these private games you're limiting who's allowed in them. So he's just making sure that no professional poker players are allowed in them. So as long as you're the best poker player at the table, it doesn't really matter what else is going on outside of that. You know, a lot of, a lot of poker players survive by it's called game selecting where they always make sure that there's three really bad players at the table. Um, and they won't play in a tough game. If the game gets tougher where the bad players leave and good players come in, um, they essentially get up off the table and go home. Um, and these are these are cash games, not tournaments. Obviously, in tournaments, you can't just cash out your chips. You have to play until the end or until you get knocked out, which is kind of kind of good in a way. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, the other celebrities, I would say most of them are pretty bad just because they're actors first and poker players second. So it's hard to, it's hard to get good at poker if you're not giving, you know, a hundred percent of your effort into it, but it's definitely, it's definitely good for poker to have these people in it and stuff. So you like seeing Kevin Hart on, you know, those televised events and, and promoting the game a little bit? Yeah. I mean, he's, yeah, I mean, he's funny. I'm not really into promotion of poker, but you know, I I have a lot of feelings about what poker, being a professional poker player and what poker actually is. I don't think it's as positive as everyone thinks it is. Um, what I do mean, you mean, especially it's not as positive. Well, like coming from a cash game mindset, especially. Um, you know, we play poker with a lot of people who are just essentially losing half a million to a million a year, and it's a very predatory lifestyle which is kind of why I'm trying to get away from it. I still think poker as a game is a beautiful and fun game, but I just think, you know, being a professional poker player, you essentially have to have to be a predator against bad players. So Otherwise, you just, just won't survive. They're just redistributing the money. Are those players in those cash games, are they playing for entertainment or are they misjudging their capabilities and when they get at a table with you and a couple of people at your level they just don't stand a chance once you get a larger sample size of hands right yeah i i would say it's a mixture of both i think that their original intent is for fun and to make money and then as the years go by they realize okay this is strictly entertainment i'm not going to win at the end of the year but i'm paying three hundred thousand to enjoy my year of playing poker they like the competition they they aren't financially affected by the money that they're losing annually and uh, they just accept it but i would say in the short term and by short term i mean less you know three years or less they probably think that they have a decent chance of actually winning which is is not true and they probably some are successful businessmen and they've been you know really good at everything they've done in life and they got plenty of cash lying around or hundreds of thousands of dollars to spend on entertainment for poker and then they get in yeah. a room and then they think uh oh yeah absolutely or they yeah and they and they you know instead of going like you know there's some professional businessmen who like to play blackjack and they you know they accept that they're probably not going to win or maybe they don't but you know they just say this is my form of entertainment this won't affect me financially i i don't care if i lose this money and I think that's kind of what it is with poker, except there's a little bit more competition. You know, when you play blackjack, you're just trying to beat the house. When you're playing poker, you're physically looking at other, you know, professional poker players that are trying to beat you. And you're thinking in your head, let me see if I can, you know, go head to head with, you know, these great players and see see if I can beat them. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's there's a lot of poker players who lie to themselves and say that oh they're doing good for the world they're doing good for the community blah 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 that they donate money but i mean at the end of the day you're when you sit down at a table um the amount of happiness won't outweigh the amount of unhappiness that happens at the table you know if i have a good day that means that someone else at the table had a bad day so right. yeah it's just a very it's a it's a shitty way to make money yeah i'm not complaining because it's got it's given me a lot of good things um and you know it's given me my business it's given me you know everything that i have currently and i still play it because i 
am, you know, I still make money off of it and I'm trying to completely get out of it. Um, but you know, it's just, I don't think there's any positive aspects of, of cash game poker, at least tournament poker is different. You know, like you can, you can, um, play a tournament for fun and, you know, you, you're capped at how much money you'll lose. You know, you, you buy into a thousand dollar tournament, you're only going to lose a thousand dollars. And there's a lot more luck involved, so I, I think an amateur doesn't have as big of a disadvantage as in a cash game, um, you know, where patience will always outweigh um, the amateur. But that's a whole another that's a whole another story. Right, right. I want to talk Phil Ivey, and I yes. came across his story recently from a legal perspective more than anything. But obviously, you being a a professional, you'll have a good understanding of this. So Phil, it seems like, got into a little bit of trouble with his, uh, let's call it a scandal. So he was, apparently he was edge sorting um, cards in a casino in London and I think a few others, and then they decided they weren't going to pay out his winnings right. um, while he was playing. It was Baccarat, right? Yeah. It was either Baccarat or like a, a modified form of Baccarat. I forget what it's called. Yeah, so they, but, were, they were playing cards. They asked the casino yeah. for a number of different requests, including certain style of cards, a certain right. dealer, um, flipping right. the cards over a certain way. They didn't touch any of the cards, so they weren't actively right. involved necessarily. But So from your perspective as a professional poker player and someone who's been around casinos and been around certain people in casinos who are legitimate cheats, and then there's obviously this Phil Ivey situation, what are your thoughts on the whole Phil Ivey scenario? Yeah, I think it's complete bullshit. I think he should have gotten paid. He didn't physically alter any of the cards. Um, you know, he found a flaw in the system and was able to capitalize on it. Um, I I know that it's it's a very fine line between that and cheating, but this is the thing. A casino has an edge. It's mathematically proven that, you know, when you play blackjack, the casino has 56 to 44 over the over the the uh, better. So if we're accepting that this edge um, is allowed by the casino, well, then the casino has a responsibility to make sure that everything is right on their end. You know, if the player finds a flaw in that, well, guess what? That's, that's the player's right because the casino just has this guaranteed edge. It's kind of like there's been a lot of stories recently where slot machines overpay or um i don't know if you've heard of any of these stories you know like a slot machine accidentally pays out like 12 million dollars and then the casino all of a sudden says oh no 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 that was a mistake there was an issue with the slot machine here's a <laughs> here's a here's a steak dinner what so so it's like it's it's essentially what in poker they call that a free roll basically you continue to lose money and when it's and when you hit a big payout i can say no, 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 that was an accident. That wasn't supposed to happen. So that's that's essentially what the, the casino is capitalizing on is a free roll. You know, they they collect money, they collect money. Phil Ivey's making these bets, he's making these bets. All of a sudden, he finds a flaw in the system and is able to capitalize it, on it. And the casino wasn't adequately doing their due diligence to determine that the cards were right, et cetera, et cetera. And they agreed to all of his terms. And now all of a sudden they say, no, no, no. I'm sorry. No, no, no. We we're not paying you. So it's bullshit. It's complete bullshit. You know. Yeah. The, the casino. It, yeah. It seems as though the casino gets to hold on to their upside every single hand and every single day and every single game. And then whenever the player has any type of upside on their side, 
they just throw their hands up in the air and say, oh, we're a private club, we have rules, you can't cheat, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And it's... Absolutely. I get it from a, that it's perspective. It's a joke. Yeah. But it it's sounds like he had... Joke. It sounds like Phil had like 6% edge or something outrageous like that. And Yeah, I, I think it the, was actually... I think it was more. I think it was closer to 8 to 10. Really? Um, wow. Yeah. But... I guess that's why the numbers are up in the millions pretty quick because I think, you know, the card counting stuff, you've got, you know, 1% or 2% edge on a good run. So right. you think about the multiples of a 10% edge, it gets pretty crazy pretty quickly. Well, I, I, I don't know if – I don't know the exact specifics, but pretty much based on where the diamonds and where they were cut off on the left side of the card, you, you could actually tell whether it was like a 6, 7, or an 8. Um, so so it probably that, was a high high edge, maybe double digits. Yeah, I mean – yeah, I mean, he essentially knew when when to press his bet based on what the dealer's cards were. I mean, imagine knowing, imagine playing blackjack knowing what the dealer's down card was. Um, it's just an absolutely insane edge. Um, but again, this goes back to that. That should be something that the casino takes up with their card manufacturer. You know, that's why the casino should have insurance. That's why the casino pays their card manufacturer to make sure that the cards are done properly you know it's just it's it's something that is absolutely outrageous for the casino to think oh okay you did that you figured out that this was going on well i'm sorry we're not paying you but all the other times that everything you know is going right and we just collect millions of dollars every year like the the player has no right to say oh i dispute this yeah yeah i guess we'll see what happens yeah so joke Online poker, April 2011. Um, yes. What impact did that have on you and your life and your friends, and, and how yeah. did that change the whole poker world? Yeah, so I actually remember that day because um, I was playing cash games on uh, Poker Stars at the. At, it was, I forget, I think it was a Monday, and, uh, whatever. I'm not going to try and remember what day it was, but um, I remember I was playing all of a sudden. I couldn't play anymore, and I was like, what's going on? Um, for me personally, it didn't have that much of a, an effect because I would say less than 10 to 15% of my annual income was was coming from uh, online poker. If anything, for the first year or two that online poker players were forced to play live, it was actually good for me because, you know, going back to live reads and stuff, a lot of these online poker players were coming from behind a computer now forced to sit in front of actual humans. And they were just really, really bad at um, shifting to to live poker. Um, so it was, I would say it was actually, in the, in the long run, it was good for me. And um, I was just, online poker was just never something I was good at. When, when you're clicking a button versus actually p- physically putting chips into a pot, there's just like a different feeling. It just doesn't feel like real money. And I would just say that I wouldn't make as clear decisions as i would in in real life if i was put into the same hand um for my friends it was you know for a lot of my friends it was you know most of them had to stop playing poker uh one of my close friends he he went to get he went to get his mba and actually became an accountant because he was making 95 percent of his income from online poker um yeah it's just it's kind of crazy what was going on and all of that so does it still linger today, like six years later? Does it still have an impact on the poker industry? Well, I mean, now New Jersey has online poker. Nevada has online poker. I, I think there's two other states have online poker. But, you know, the prize pools are just not the same. The player pools are not the same because 
if you're in Nevada, you can only play against people in Nevada. If you're in New Jersey, you can only play against people in New Jersey. Um, so it limits the pools of people. Um, it also limits how many people are coming up from nothing. You know, I mean, the lowest game in a casino is one dollar, two dollar, where you sit down with a hundred bucks. The lowest limit online was one cent, two cent, maybe, or even smaller than that. Yeah. There might have been half cent, one cent. So you could literally start with nothing and learn how to play poker, which just isn't the case now. So the people who generally are starting to play poker know a little bit more and are a little bit wiser with their money because they're actually risking, you know, decent, decent amounts of money and, um, tournaments, especially back in, back in those days, you could, you know, buy into for a dollar into a, um, into a big tournament, or I'm sorry, you could play a satellite for a dollar. So you could, play a dollar tournament that gets you into a hundred dollar tournament that gets you into a thousand dollar tournament that gets you into the main event for 10,000. Um, nowadays that just isn't the case. So it's definitely changed everything. It's changed live poker. But, um, for me, 2011 was kind of after I won my bracelet, you know, a lot of people would be like, Oh, now I can play more because I have more money. I was just thinking now I can play less because I have more money. (laughs) So, so what, so what's the future for the online component? Because I've seen certainly another, the other gambling, whether it's Daily Fantasy, for example, there's software now where you can put hundreds and hundreds of entries into right. contests. Is there going to be software that takes over and, and game theory optimal software that will take over and you know online games will just be uh, basically GTO Computers. versus GTO? Yeah. I mean, I apparently the the computer that you need to actually play gto just for one-on-one um is extremely expensive and extremely large um so i don't think that for the immediate future that that's going to be the case um and i think that the computing power to solve six-handed poker is way too big at the moment so i mean i'm speaking from limited knowledge from what i've listened to on poker podcasts and stuff like that but I don't think anytime soon that that'll be the case. Um, and there's also some merit to playing anti-GTO. So, you know, it's it's hard to play GTO against um, someone who kind of is all over the place. Um, and you'll see it when you watch televised poker. You'll watch professional poker players play against this completely random guy who, like, his decisions never make any sense. Um, so it's very hard to combat that. Um, even though GTO, I guess, is technically supposed to combat any strategy. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I'm not as well-versed on online poker as others. Uh, live poker is really more of my thing. Um, I think that in order for online poker to come back to where it should be, the United States as a whole needs to legalize online poker, which a lot of people are pushing for in the poker community. I don't know how close that is to happening. I mean, we only have four out of 50 states that even have um, statewide online poker happening. Um, so we'll see. I mean, there's a lot of casinos going up on the East Coast, so maybe it'll just transfer to a mixture of live and online poker where you're just sitting at a table that has, you know, it's almost like live online poker. You're sitting at a table that has buttons. Yeah. And instead of a dealer, you have, you know, I've seen them on like cruise ships. Yeah, I think if they perfect that, maybe you could play, you know, three or four tables, but live, so to speak. You know, maybe your face is at multiple tables 
with like a screen or something like that. I think that would actually be kind of cool. A mixture of both live and online poker. So do you have any tips for the average poker player who likes to play for entertainment who might be in Vegas and wants to sit down for four or five hours and play a live live poker cash game or they might want to even enter a tournament just for some fun? Is there anything, sounds like, you know, seat selection and things like that are out of your control, but are there any things they could be doing just to sort of maximize their chances of winning? Yeah, I mean, I would say right now playing poker professionally is very, very hard to break into. But if you want to just do it for fun, that's definitely something I would recommend. And, you know, a tournament is a lot of fun. Um, I would say for a tournament, just play tight and, uh, you know, try and pay attention to everything that's going on. People these days are so into their phones and iPads and stuff that they're missing out on a lot of nuances and details of, especially when you're not in a hand, watch other good players play a hand, see what they do, um, you know, see what they're doing right. Um, and even bad players, so you can learn a lot from some bad players. Um, I think that a lot of top professionals kind of dismiss bad players and never think, oh, what did they just do there and how can I implement that into my game? Um, and then just with cash games, I would just say to play within your means and within what you're comfortable losing, you know, I see people playing way too big just because they want to play bigger. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with playing smaller and just being comfortable and having fun. So, yep. Good advice. So before I let you go, who are some of the best poker players you've ever seen or played with or against in your time? I think everyone sucks. So. Besides yourself, of course. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't really, I would say, Phil Ivey has definitely been one of the most intimidating players I've ever played with. Um, he has like a very interesting stature. He's, I think he's like six one, six two, and he just has like a very bold presence. When he comes to your table, you feel it. Um, whether he's actually tough when it comes to, you know, mechanics of poker and you know knowing all of the all of the proper moves, that's another thing. I think he for a while he was one of the best, but. I don't know. I mean, outside of that, I just think there's a lot of young, tough players that people don't really know that that have been crushing, like Fedor Holtz. He's he's been he won probably twelve to thirteen million in the past two years playing, you know, hundred thousand and a half million dollar buy-ins. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of there's a lot of tough players these days. So even the even, these days, when you see a young European sit at your table. Um, they're usually a really good player, whereas you know in 2007 they were probably bad. Okay. So, so if anyone wants to get to uh, or follow some other younger players or players coming through, are there any podcasts or shows or Twitter handles or anything like that? Maybe some names you can suggest. No, there's no good poker podcast. They all suck. But <laughs> um, one of my I, one of my friends does a, a video uh, log or vlog. Vlog is that what they're called? Yeah, vlog. Uh, it's called Solve for Why Academy. It's pretty cool. Um, they f- it follows him and a couple other people who are doing like a Las Vegas live academy of teaching you how to play poker. Um, it's called Solve for Why Academy. Um, who else? Daniel Negreanu. I think his Twitter handle is at Real Kid Poker. He's you know an old school player who's still been surviving playing poker for 25, 30 years, and he actually did a vlog all summer about what the grind of playing, you know, 40 days of poker in the, in, in Las Vegas feels like that I thought was pretty cool. There were 15 to 20 minutes every, or maybe 10 to 15 minutes every episode. 
but it gives you a good sense of what it's like to be a professional poker player during that time. I mean, outside of that, they can follow me. At yeah, Alan what about Barry. at Alan Barry? Can they give you grief on Twitter and tweet at you? And Yeah, sure. A-L-L-E-N-B-A-R-I. You can harass me. I get harassed all the time. <laughs> I have no People doubt. People talk shit to me. <laughs> Alan, thank you very, very much for coming on the uh, podcast. It was great to chat, and I hope to do it again soon. Thanks, Jake. Talk to you soon.